doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with actor and writer Joseph Kibler. Joseph will be telling us a bit about the journey of his life as someone who was born HIV positive. This conversation is so fantastic. Joseph did an incredible job, and his story is absolutely fascinating. Just to give you a preview of what we talk about, Joseph was not expected to live very long when he was born, but he was actually part of an experimental drug trial in the 80s run by Dr. Fauci that helped to save his life. Joseph was a Make-A-Wish kid. If you aren't familiar with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, their goal is to grant wishes for children who are critically ill. And Joseph will talk to us about what it feels like to grow up thinking that you don't have a future and then to live into your future and realize, wow, I'm still here. I first became familiar with Joseph due to his TikTok account, and I was immediately impressed because he's out there talking about being born with HIV, which is a very stigmatized condition. So just to be public about HIV status at all is something that I find to be just really, really admirable. So I reached out and asked if Joseph would be willing to come on the show. I was thrilled that he said yes, and I was so excited to have this conversation. He did not disappoint in the slightest. I mean, I learned so much from this about what it's like to live with HIV, the advancements that have been made, the way that being born with this disease can affect your body over time, and also just to get to spend an afternoon chatting with a really great human. So I'm thrilled to share this episode with with you today and so appreciative that Joseph came on the show. I have a little bit of podcast news and personal news to share with you before we get into our conversation today. I was so excited to see that we got two new five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. As I always say, it's really important for me to feel like I'm connected to the audience of this show, to just know if I'm doing a good job or not. You know, it's really important stuff that we talk about on this show. And I get in my head sometimes about wanting to make sure I'm presenting it in a way that is honoring the story and honoring the guest. And so it's really important to me to get some feedback. And both of these reviews were just so amazing. I appreciated them so much. I'm going to share them with you. Uh, This is from Dart Girl. It's called Anytime Understanding. The best part of this podcast is the accessibility anytime. On my bad days, I know I'm just a few clicks away from others that understand. Dark Girl, thank you so much. This brought me so much joy because I just think back to myself, you know, for years living with this bizarre undiagnosed illness, having no idea if it was all in my head or if any of it was real and just feeling so alone and isolated and wishing there was someone else I could talk to uh, who might understand. And to know that people are finding that sort of validation and comfort from this podcast is just so, so gratifying. So thank you so much for your review. Our second five-star review was from Theos, a podcast you need in your life. As someone who was just diagnosed, this is the exact type of podcast I've been looking for. I love how there is such a wide variety of guests when it comes to their stories and chronic illnesses. I've only listened to a few episodes so far and am so happy I have a bunch more to listen to. Listening has helped me not feel so alone and to know that there's always more to come. Thank you for the podcast, and I hope you never stop making episodes. Also, I borrowed my family's iPad to write this review because I have an Android and just need everyone to know that they should listen to this podcast. Theos, thank you so much. I loved it so much. (laughs) I mean, you know, I just passed the five-year mark of not being able to work because of my chronic illness. And I, you know, there is an element of my life that is very isolating still. And being able to reach out to this community through this podcast to get this type of feedback 
it's just very, very healing for me. It's really just amazing. So thank you both so much. I really appreciate these reviews. And to anyone else listening, if you haven't left us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts, please do so. It is extremely helpful uh, because it does help the show reach new listeners. I also have high hopes of being able to continue this podcast for a long time to come. And one of the best ways you can help make that happen is by becoming a financial supporter of this podcast on Patreon. There are three tiers, the supporter tier for $2 per month, the patron tier for $7 per month, and the producer tier at $25 per month. Patrons and producers will receive one-time gifts when you sign up. My mom has created some amazing coasters and tote bags with the Major Pain logo on it. And all three tiers will also receive special recognition and shout-outs in the show. Patrons and producers are listed by name in the end credits of every episode. And I am officially adding a brand new reward. So, uh, as I've been talking about, I, last week I released our very first bonus episode for the podcast. It was kind of an experiment to see if people would listen and to see if I was able to create uh, it, one bonus episode per month. It went super well. Andy and I are both really excited about it. We recorded this bonus episode together. We've decided to make this official. So we're going to put out one bonus episode at the beginning of each month of Andy and I answering questions submitted by our Patreon community. If you're already a part of that community, I have posted the prompt for our December bonus episode. So you have a couple of weeks to submit your questions. We've already got a great question from Laura um, that Andy and I are excited to answer. Her question is, I know that you and Andy love thrifting and expressing yourself through fashion. Can you tell us what you love about it and what it means to you? So this is going to be super fun. Uh, you know, Andy is a massive thrifter and she's really gotten me into it. I don't really buy much of any new clothes at all anymore. I try to get everything secondhand. And we have a lot of fun thrifting adventures and she watches all sorts of thrifting videos and stuff like that. So... <laughs> So I encourage the rest of our Patreon community to submit any questions you might have. I'm always happy to share any behind-the-scenes information about the show, or if you just want to ask Andy and I random questions just to have fun and hang out, uh, that's obviously very okay as well. And if you'd like to sign up to join our Patreon community, you can head over to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast, or head to our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash support to see all the ways that you can help support this show, including sending in a one-time donation. As someone who's been unable to work for the past five years, I'm really trying to find a way to bring in some income. I would love to create something that adds some value to the world that can bring some financial value to my life as well. And I'm really hoping this podcast can do that. So far, I'm bringing in about $70 a month, which is massively, massively helpful. Uh, I appreciate all of our Patreon community so much. Uh, extra special thank you to Chris Fowler and Steve Cavanaugh, our two Patreon producers. Thank you so much for helping to make this episode possible today. If you've been following the ongoing saga of me trying to get a diagnosis, uh, you'll remember several weeks ago I mentioned that I was having some testing done to try to figure out once and for all if I indeed have Wilson's disease, which is a copper processing issue that would explain all of my symptoms. This has been a very, very stressful time for me, uh, just to be right on the precipice of a potential answer or on the precipice of finding out that I have to go back to the drawing board and start again with a new doctor. I just really want to know either way. I really thought that I was going to get results after taking this test. <laughs> uh, I should have known better than to even bring it up until I had the results in hand. So we've run into some more snags. My doctor's not sure how to interpret my results. She's reaching out to other Wilson's disease specialists. And I'm just, I haven't even spoken to her since taking the test. I've just heard things secondhand through a nurse. I haven't been able to get her on the phone. 
So, you know, I'm, I don't have new information yet. And it's been very, very frustrating for me. My plan is that once I have information, uh, if there's enough information to share, I'm just going to record an episode of the main podcast feed with Andy to talk about it. That's my hope. <laughs> and this is real. This is really how I literally just got, I paused recording for a second because I literally just got an email from my doctor. This is the first, <laughs> this is the first I've heard from her. Um, wow. Okay. So basically she says, uh, just kind of confirming what I heard through the grapevine, through her nurse, that she's not sure how to interpret my results. She says that she has an email out to one of the national Wilson's disease slash copper experts in the U.S. and is waiting to hear back about next steps. So, I'm, I don't know. I don't know still. <laughs> uh, so, I'm still waiting. I will definitely update you all when I get some concrete information. She says at the end, sorry, this is taking so long. You are unique. <laughs> there it is, folks. We have uh, <laughs> a medical opinion uh, that I am a unique individual. Last thing I want to say before we jump into our conversation with Joseph is I just want everyone out there to send some positive vibes in Brooke's direction. You'll remember Brooke, she was on the show a couple weeks ago talking about adrenal cancer, as well as many other diagnoses that she's been living with. Um, she mentioned that she she's been exploring the possibility that a mass in her kidney might be cancerous. And I've been keeping up with her social media posts and seeing that she's having this looked at right now. And she's going through a lot of really scary, intense stuff. And Brooke is just such a special person. I really um, just want all the best for her. And I want her to to know that that this whole community is here for her and thinking of her and sending positive energy her way. And with that, we're going to get into our conversation with Joseph about being born HIV positive. Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Your story is one that I've gotten a bit more of than I normally do before chatting with someone just through TikTok. <laughs> I mean, I love your TikTok channel. I've seen a whole bunch of your videos. So I feel like Thank I already you. know you a little bit and I know that this is going to be a real treat today for our listeners. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you reached out and it's, it's been a fun experience on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Joseph, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, my name is Joseph Kibler. I am an actor, writer. I've been out in Los Angeles now for about 13 years um, pursuing the entertainment industry. First came out as an actor and then uh, realized I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and so I thought maybe I should go to film school. Started pursuing that, got into production and producing, casting world, management for a little bit. And once I got a few tools under my belt... I returned back to acting with a little more knowledge and wow. I've been uh, doing that now uh, full time for the last four or five years, which has been wonderful. Wow. That's awesome. And how old are you now? I am 32. Okay. So you've done quite a bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I kind of jumped out right in front. Um, <laughs> I, I graduated high school and I had a scholarship opportunity to go to Savannah College of Art and Design for theater. Wow. And then I also had an opportunity to come out to LA. And when I found out the school was going to cost me upwards to a few hundred grand to finish, uh, I took LA as the option instead and decided maybe just get the experience. Yeah. Um, I got a really wonderful opportunity through my theater uh, summer camp that I was going to. Uh, the owners of it were based out in LA, but they would come out to Florida or Missouri or a few other places. And they uh, 
were really wonderful. They were my mentors and they wrote a lot of the Disney sequels. They were a husband and wife. <laughs> the sequels. Um, yeah. The, yeah, straight the sequels. To, straight like to Lion, Yeah. Lion King yeah. Uh, <laughs> two and a half or uh, Beauty and the Beast, the Enchanted Christmas. Yeah. And so um, when they knew I was like really going to pursue this, I was 18. They're like, if you want to come to LA, come out, we'll give you a couch figure the rest out and then go from there. And I was wow. like, okay, let's just load up the car. And that's what we did. Yeah. Well, you lived the dream. I mean, most people, <laughs> most people are like, I want to be an actor. I'm going to go to LA and they're like, I'm going to get famous within a year or two. But you know, what you <laughs> did is like, that's how it works. You, you're there grinding the oh, pavement yeah. for a decade. And it's now you, and you finally are working full time, which is incredible. Yes. It's been a, you know, I love when anyone calls any other like actor a overnight success. It always yeah. makes me laugh. It's like, yeah, it's overnight for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not for them. Yeah. I've heard my dad say like, you, you know, it's going to take like a, t- 15 years for you to be an overnight success or something like that. Exactly. But yeah, that's totally how it works. Well, you're very <laughs> talented. I mean, I, I love your TikTok channel. The first video of yours that I saw was... Um, you talking to yourself, like one of you with your crutches and the other with the wheelchair. (laughs) And I just loved it so much because I, you know, I am also an ambulatory wheelchair user. So I, you'll sometimes see me walking with a cane, sometimes with a wheelchair. And Mm -hmm. as, as soon as I saw that in your video, I just like, yes, this is, I relate to this. And then also the subject matter, which is like people assuming things about you and about your abilities based off of the fact that you're in a wheelchair is something that I'm just kind of living with and dealing with right now. And I just loved how you presented that in this comedic way. So yeah, I really appreciated that and many other of your videos. Oh, thank you. It's, you know, it's so fascinating to me. I've traveled from the wheelchair to the walker, walker to crutches, crutches to cane. And each of those steps has had such a different uh, perspective Mm -hmm. and such a different reaction from people that it's just, it fascinates me. People know disability in so such a specific way and like when i'm in the wheelchair is when i'm actually ironically perceived as the most like accepted quote unquote Mm, wow because it's like we know wheelchairs we get wheelchairs we've seen wheelchairs on tv for 30 years 40 years we understand that when i'm on my cane or my crutches it's like you can see people not able to process it because they start going towards cognitive functions they start going towards like, are you just drunk? I've been at, I've been at concerts <laughs> where like when I've had just the cane, people are like, that guy's having a good time. Wow. It's like, no, I mean, I am, but not in, this, in the way you're thinking. Yeah. Unrelated. Yeah. Unrelated. Um, <laughs> but it's, it is fascinating. I, I, I think I joked about it on a TikTok, but I feel like a Ken doll with my accessories. Like there's so <laughs> many versions and things. And when I'm going to auditions, um, I'll always be like, okay, I'll tell my agent. I'll always first email back is like, what do they want? Do they want wheelchair? Do they want cane? What do they want? Do they want crutches? <laughs> and it always, usually it's wheelchair because that's what media represents and mm-hmm. understands. And if you're going up in the commercial world, you have 30 seconds to get across every bit of information you need. Yeah. And unfortunately, in that time frame, there's not enough for a lot of people to like elaborate on what it means to have a cane and how that affects you. They want the quick, easy. Yeah. wheelchair we got it i've done so many where it's just like yep you're in a wheelchair you're the wheelchair wells fargo guy you're the wheelchair <laughs> home realtor guy like we get it you can wheel in and we're done we yeah. don't have to do anything for the audience it's so true i mean that's something i've 
I've learned on TikTok as well. Like if I'm going to talk about my experience in a wheelchair, I need to be in the wheelchair in yeah. that video. It needs to be immediately apparent in one second what I'm talking about. You know, for me to get up there like on the couch or something and say, this is my experience in a wheelchair. People are going to no scroll gonna by. Listen. Yeah, no, exactly. It's so funny. There's so many videos I've done where I'm just like, I'm just going to lean my crutches in the visual parameter of this screen. And then suddenly it's like, oh, that number went up. It's mm. like, because people want to grasp every bit of thing as quickly as possible. It's like yeah. writing. Yeah. When you're writing a story, you want to establish everything as soon as you can to get the reader on board. Right. So it's like as a visual medium, as a disabled person, you can also utilize that because it's like, hey, look, this is not another TikTok of another. I mean, you take my wheelchair away, you take my cane away. You don't share my story. I'm just a white guy. Who wants to hear from a white guy? <laughs> no one. Yeah. We've done it. We've heard it. Yeah. We're good. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, I, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> I too am a white guy. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I'm like, man, I'm putting out a lot of content and everyone must be so sick of me. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, that's something I love about this show is that this podcast is about other people's stories. Um, yeah, well, let's get into the details of this a little bit, because your story Perfect. is uh, is incredible. So, Joseph, what is your major pain? My major pain is uh, not only one, but two things. I get to, I have to go above and beyond in life. And that <laughs> is, uh, I'm HIV positive, and I have cerebral palsy on a technical level. I mm. don't actually have that diagnosis. So, I'll break it down a little. Yeah. Um, my HIV affected my neurological system, which caused a uh, mimic of cerebral palsy. Wow. So it affected the gray matter of my brain and caused um, physical functional issues. So there's that detach. I always said like when I was little, because this ma made sense when I was little, that it was like a dial-up modem. Now I can't say dial-up modem anymore. That's not a thing. <laughs> um, but it's like a slow connection. And so it mimicked what you go through as somebody with CP. So that was kind of what they labeled it. And back in the 80s and the 90s, they were kind of lazy with this stuff. So they're just <laughs> like, eh, it's, it's CP. Let's just, you got it. Keep going. Wow. Um, but I was told I would never live past four and wow. I would never walk. And I am now 32 and I use crutches. Yeah. Um, they didn't have much of a, a chance. So for that time period, it was 1989. I was born. I'm 32 now. Uh, in 1990, I got my diagnosis as HIV positive. Yeah. So the reason it took so long was um, after I was born, I was also born a twin. Um, both of us weren't developing properly. We were getting very sick and they had no understanding as to why. They ran every test in the book except HIV because yeah. at that time, my mom and my father were both Caucasian. My mom was a non-IV drug user there was middle class. There was nothing about their situation that would cause them to be like, we need to test for HIV. It mm -hmm. just didn't happen. Wow. Finally, after every other test was done, they're like, well, we got to do this one. And they tested both of us and we came back positive, which meant that my mom was positive, which wow. meant that my dad was positive. Wow. Um, and it kind of changed everything. Um, it turned out, and I'm, I'm a fairly open book. So I'll go into this, but it, it turned out that my father had cheated on my mom. Wow. And he had unknowingly um, contracted HIV. He then wow. passed it on to her and then obviously on to my brother and I. Um, he had no idea. Uh, once they found out 
what we were going through, they got us right to the National Institute of Health in Maryland and got us on the first test studies of infants with HIV. So we were among the first group to be um, tested on with the new medications that were coming in. And my brother and I specifically were fascinating for them because they could test different medication on the same DNA yeah, and they could determine what it really means and what this medication is going to do. And it was actually talk about the world coming full circle. <laughs> it was run by Dr. Fauci. <laughs> so my whole life is just like bookend. I mean, hopefully not bookend. Let's <laughs> yeah. not like knock on wood on that one. But my life has come back now to Dr. Fauci. Yeah. As, as all of our lives have. Um, <laughs> You're like, I've been, I've known this guy I, a long time. Yeah. I'm like, listen to him. It, trust me. Wow. It's, it's worth it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Your story is incredible. I mean, there's so much that you've already <laughs> talked about. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. So, of course, the so you were born HIV positive, yes, and the HIV has affected your brain in a way that created something that is functionally cerebral palsy. Correct. And without the HIV, there would be no cerebral palsy. Correct. Okay. Wow. It was a handful of people have ever happened to actually because of TikTok more than anything. I found a few others like me who are also HIV positive, who affected their brains wow. neurologically and have a form of cerebral palsy. So wow. it, it's very, but they're very limited. There's not many of us. And how, how common is it for someone to be born HIV positive? When I, when I saw your TikToks about it, it's the first time I've ever heard of that at all. So is, is this something like, do you run into people in the world or have you run into it, anyone it, on TikTok? It's a small percentage. Um, I ran on when I was back on the social media game of like Instagram and all that. I've met a few people through that that were also born HIV positive. It is a smaller demographic, but the problem is within the media and within representation in general, obviously the narrative for HIV is in the LGBTQ community. Yeah. It's rarely even seen to be straight and HIV positive. And mainly because a lot of people who are struggling in that community of the straight community um, don't have a support system and aren't as verbal. Um, my mom, who is a heterosexual woman, doesn't still talk about it. And that's her right. And she doesn't, she's not open about her story as open as I am, which yeah. is completely and perhaps sometimes too much, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. Um, but there's a reason for that too. And I, I'll go into that a little yeah. later. Um, but there is a there's a smaller percentage. Um, a lot of people don't think about uh, HIV transmission even in drug infusion. Uh, in, sorry, in blood infusions, mm -hmm. um, they don't think about it in just casual heterosexual forms of sex. So it's it's a lot of that was part of wrapped in my identity. When I would tell people that I was HIV positive, I was always telling them I was born HIV positive. And as a way to like make it more clear that it happens. Yeah. Um, nowadays, because we know that U equals U, which is uh, undetectable equals untransmittable. So mm. if you are undetectable and you're on medication, you have no presence of the virus in your body, meaning you cannot transmit it to others. Wow. Meaning that you can have traditional means of pregnancy. The problem was why kids were who are now my age were born HIV positive and why it's less likely to be seen nowadays is because we didn't even, the information on heterosexuality and HIV wasn't there. Yeah. So people were getting HIV unknowing and then having children. And then, so there's 
a good group that are now my age yeah that were part of that you're not seeing it in the media now because it is less and less because we've gotten better handle on the medication and the understanding of how to transmit hiv and what it means yeah so so is there medication that you are on right now oh yeah i'm on i'm on the old school cocktail though uh, a lot of a lot of the cool kids nowadays get the one a day. Uh-huh. I'm on a four pill a day, um, twice a day, because I'm just an old old body with this. Um, I've been <laughs> on every HIV medication, every test trial, every injection since I was little. So over time, you got 32 years of you know handfuls of pills twice a day. You suddenly start to get a little resistant, hmm. and then you have to try different things and tougher meds. And HIV medication in itself is very toxic because of what it has to do to the body. So, you know, I'm, I'm popping myself full of, of toxins just to manage this wow. in a lot of ways, not to make it scary and not to say that it's something you shouldn't be on. You absolutely should be on HIV medication, um, but it is a powerful medication. That's because it's doing powerful things to your body and it's keeping the immune system strong. Yeah. So where where does that put you on this you and you scale? I am undetectable, um, and I have a high T cell count, which is you know for your body's immunity, uh, which is very rare. I actually get a lot of awe from my doctors when they look at my kidneys and they look at my liver, and they see no damage, which is very unusual because these kind of meds over that long of a time should have caused significant kidney issues or uh, liver issues just because of what they're doing to the body, right? Um, what you're pumped in with, essentially. Uh, but I'm very lucky in that sense that I'm undetectable. I don't miss medications. Um, I'm very consistent with that. That's how you end up in a situation where you become detectable and your viral load gets above a certain point. So if your T-cell count goes below uh, 230, then that considers that's the situ- from AIDS to HIV. So if you HIV positive, your T cell count is above 230. You have AIDS, quote unquote, um, if it's below 230 or 260. And all that really means is that you're now acquired immune deficiency syndrome, which means uh, now you are capable of getting infections or having flus or things that are coming into your body that are now going to weaken you further. And so when someone dies of HIV or dies, I'm using air quotes because it's like when someone dies in this way, they're dying because of a complication. So HIV or AIDS didn't kill them. It's what HIV does to the body that lowered its immune system and made it not able to fight the thing that came in. So when I was very young and we were going through the medications, my twin brother and I, his medication wasn't getting to the system as strong. And so he ended up getting pneumonia and he ended up passing at 16 months Wow! because the body couldn't fight it any longer. So you could say he died of HIV, but he died of pneumonia. Right. Yeah. And so you and your brother under the, under the care of Dr. Fauci were given two experimental drugs and yours, I mean, you have the same genetic DNA. Yeah. It, it was, and really, you know, I, I posted a video about this on TikTok. Yeah, I saw and it. <laughs> I did get a few people that were uh, under the assumption or worried for me or felt that the testing wasn't appropriate, perhaps. 
And so it's nice to have this kind of platform to yeah. kind of explain or elaborate that in that situation, it was really providing us more of an opportunity. Right. The idea was that they got a chance to try more medication on the same variable right. that would allow them better answers that would help us all. So ideally, what was supposed to happen was if one of us wasn't responding as as great as the other to one medication or the other medication, they'd switch us to that better medication. Right. So they'd get a quicker response time. Right. Unfortunately, just at that time, people and, and people who went through the 80s and the early 90s understand this. You get a diagnosis. Most of the people that were diagnosed in the 80s were, were passing four weeks later. Wow. This was not a long-term thing. You couldn't wait and kind of, you know, parallels again. I won't get too far into that of where we are now in the world, but you have to act fast. And they did what was in the best interest of us and for other infants. We were part of a study that was a greater study. So the idea was that they were just going to get more information from us that was better affect other children, which it did ultimately. Obviously, I am still here. Yeah. And so the medication I got then was more reaffirmed that this was the right direction. Yeah. I mean, it's astonishing. Like, yeah, when you think about it scientifically and logically, you know, doing nothing. <laughs> Yeah. is no good. And no. when you have options, but you don't know what the best one is, you know, it does make sense. Give one child one drug and the other child another drug. And like you said, in the hopes of being able to, whichever one works best, we're going to switch the other child to this one. And, yeah. and you know, it was the, the pneumonia that was fatal. Yeah. And if it hadn't been for that pneumonia, there might've been time to switch drugs. Exactly. So, I, rem I saw this TikTok that you're talking about and I, I, you know, this was something I really wanted to ask you about. So I'm glad you brought it up. You know, this whole thing of like Dr. Fauci running this study back in the 80s. I mean, this is inc incredible that I'm talking to someone who is like, you know, alive today because of this drug, basically. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's tragic that your brother's life was lost in this process. I mean, absolutely tragic. And I can see how some people would say that, like, blame Fauci. You know, there's people out there that want to blame Dr. Fauci for everything. But, absolutely. But what he was doing saved your life and, yeah. you know, countless other lives because we know that this drug works better. Yeah, if you think about it this way, we could have both been put on the same medication that my, bro my brother John was put on. Yeah. And we both could have passed. Right. You know, and, and that way is that much of a better study? And not doing a study is, is certainly not an option. Right. Well, it your attitude isn't. about it is is amazing. I so appreciate it because you're seeing it from the most logical point of view, which is that, you know, you were born with this virus at a time when very little was known about it. And mm -hmm. they had to try something, you know, and what they tried saved you. And that's incredible. And you're grateful for that. Um, and rightly so. And I how does it feel to have Dr. Fauci's face everywhere all of a sudden? He's now a household name. Well, it's such a it's such a bizarre thing because it's and it's also this weird idea of history repeating itself <laughs> and going through that. But yeah. it is it's fascinating because I didn't even really, you know, even with what he did for me, that fades because it's like you go on with life and you think about these other things. I've had many doctors yeah. in many parts of the world doing many supervisions and, and giving me many notes. Um, my whole life is doctors giving me some sort of information. And 
you know, you kind of forget about that. And then this world kind of turns upside down and you see this person come back <laughs> that you're like, oh, right. Yeah, obviously. And then to watch the world dissect that person yeah. in a way that they would Bradley Cooper or <laughs> the way that they would, you know, someone who is a celebrity or is in the spotlight for a different kind of reason. It's, I mean, I said fascinating because there's just really no other word for it. Yeah. Do you think of him warmly or sort of, of course detached? Do. You do. You have warm feelings. No, towards I mean, him. Yeah. I have warm feelings towards him. I was very little and I don't have any like adult memories or even childhood memories of, of him. But of course, I'm going to think of him warmly and what he had to do. And that's a tough position to be in because one way or another, you're going to end up wrong for somebody. Yeah. You're going to end up. You 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 can't and science is that way. You, it's not all solutions. It's mostly failures. Yeah, with the hope of one solution. Yeah, yeah. And when the solutions are found, the whole point of science and the scientific method is to find something that works most, if not all, of the time. And yeah. every human body. I mean, science, medical science is tricky because every human body is so different. So there's oh. nothing that works for everyone, but this drug worked for you and yes. and without this drug you likely wouldn't be here today and that's incredible and it is i mean it's so sad to think about the fact that your brother could have been here today too but of course but that doesn't mean that um, i mean it does, absolutely does not mean that something wrong was done to your family you know no no in no way and he did not yeah. pass in vain and uh you know whether you're spiritual or not spiritual or you know those things, I do feel like life has purpose and life has a meaning and that we're all here to do something. That's kind of as far as my, my spirituality will go, but I do feel like we're all here for a reason. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it was hard not to believe that he was here to, to teach this lesson and to give us this, this answer. And to also, you know, I, I have a life of tragedies. I, I've lived a life of, of many experiences and it started with him. And I think he knew that in some way, knew that for my mom in some way. And it was like, a, hey, you know, get used to this, kids. Like, mm. this is going to be something that's going to happen a lot. And um, whether it's a good thing to be equipped with or not, I find myself very equipped to tragedy. Wow. Um, as just a life occurrence, not a, a shocking thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that can be hard. And it's not a great thing. I don't wish the experience of that on anyone, but I am grateful for the calluses that I've been able to create to help protect me as I go forward in this world. Wow, absolutely. Yeah, do you mind if I ask what happened with your parents? I mean, it sounds like there was this huge trauma that, you know, you, you said your dad, you know, yeah, had so an my, affair and what, what happened after that? My father was very much a, um, I always say something happens in your life and you can react one of two ways. You grow or you diminish. Mm. You either rise up or you fall. My mom rose up. My dad fell. Wow. And it was just the experience of, of that. My mom became basically her own doctor, her own advocate for me, for my brother, for, um, for just getting through this world. And my dad had to take on those mistakes and take on the failures of what he had, he had been the cause of. And it was hard on him. Um, he had struggled with addictions. He struggled with uh, any sort of proper coping mechanisms. 
And for him, it was easier to just keep falling into that, to having more adultering and more drugs and more uh, distance and detachments. And we have better names for this stuff now that we didn't have then, but my parents couldn't make it work. And eventually I'd see him less and less and less. And even phone calls were getting shorter and shorter. And it took me coming into my own as an adult to realize it wasn't that he didn't want to talk to me is that talking to me was a reminder of everything he did wrong. Wow. And when someone's not able to accept that and wants to deal with that, they want to distance themselves from that failure. And my voice was a ticking clock <laughs> of what he had done. And so eventually you just have to be able to give that person that forgiveness or that peace of mind. Um, we never got to have a full on uh, discussion about what he had done. He had passed when I was 20. Wow. So um, the Christmas before I was planning on having this conversation with him as I was coming into my own as an adult, uh, I kind of was ripped away from that experience. And he just had gotten very sick. He wasn't consistently taking his medication. He was uh, doing things that were probably not great for his system at that time. Um, but he was ultimately unhappy. And I don't fault him in any way for what he did. I understand that it was so hard for him to accept that. I've had mistakes. We've all had things where we've done and we're like, if I could just change that. Now imagine timesing that by a hundred yeah. or a thousand. To live with that kind of guilt is very hard. My mom tells me the story of her father pulling my father off the roof of the hospital because he just wanted to end it because he knew he did something that was so awful that there's not a lot of coming back from that. Mm. And I do wish he had been able to say to me, you know, I'm sorry, let's move forward to have that parent relationship, but he couldn't. And that was something he had to deal with. And I feel bad that he had to deal with that because he could have been an entirely different person. And that's just the path he had to take. Um, so he passed. My mom is now, uh, I have a stepfather. She, they've been together for quite some time and she's as stubborn and um, strong as ever, um, but she's doing well. Wow. And I just try to learn from my father's mistakes. Do you mind if I ask how he passed? So he passed again, pneumonia. Wow. Uh, infections. Uh, he had um, not been consistently on his medication. I'm assuming he was doing some um, drug abuse at the time as well. And that's a lethal combination. Yeah. And it's a common one. Yeah. Well, um, it's such a weight to live under, you know, yeah. like you said, not just the disease, but the guilt and yeah. the knowledge that, you know, the guilt of like what it's done to the whole family. And yeah, I'm 32 now. And I think about having children with my girlfriend and I think about what that means for the future and like having to raise children and you know, as a 14-year-old, I was angry at my dad and I wanted more answers. But now I'm coming the age of my dad when he, I'm past the age of my dad when he did this. Hmm. And to know that, that he had done this as a 29-year-old, it's like, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to handle that as a 29-year-old yeah. too. I'm three years past that. And I don't think I could have, yeah. have managed. Well, yeah, I get it. totally. And I mean, like you said, in the 80s in particular, you know, having HIV is not something that that was readily talked about. It was it's so heavily stigmatized for very 
unfair reasons and to not be able to talk to something talk about something that you're experiencing and to feel that guilt on top of that you can absolutely see how that would spiral out of control and yeah. it, you know it's part of the reason that it, this show is important to me and why I'm so grateful for you to come on and to talk so openly is because talking openly about these things is so important because other people can hear what you're going through and feel less alone in what they're going through. It's fascinating to me because it's such a generational flip. Mm. Um, You go from a generation of you don't talk about these things to a generation where you become someone of not only note, but someone of, of loved and praised in a way by sharing your story. Like yeah. I, I'm on TikTok now, as we talked about already. And like the, the accounts that are up there that are talking about their own struggles and their own stories and their own traumas have now found an outlet that were, would have destroyed the generation before them. <laughs> and yet this generation has a million followers wow. that are having merch based on their trauma. And I don't <laughs> say that in a negative way. I say that in the most amazing way. I think about that I didn't come out about my status until I was 17. Now I see kids that are out about their status at 12. Wow. And it's and have a platform for it and people telling them that they are loved. What wow. a wonderful turnaround. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, ugh. yeah, it just breaks my heart to think about people suffering alone. And like for me, like with my mystery illness, not knowing yeah. what it was for so long. I mean, still don't, but <laughs> um, yeah, still don't. Used to not, still don't. Um, it's a journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like not knowing what it is and not knowing how to talk about it, feeling like I had to hide it because people would judge you for being weak or less than perfect. It just, you just feel so isolated. It's just a really dis- distinctly horrible feeling. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. What is it like to be born with a stigmatized disease? Because I think the stigma is often wrapped up in homophobia and mm-hmm. um which obviously is awful. But then on on top of that it's like you didn't do anything. You were born with this disease. And then to no, come I, out about your status must be a difficult thing. It, there's there's a few layers to this. So the first is I, I found out when I was HIV positive when I was 11. Um, I didn't wow. know until I was 11. You didn't know um, until you were 11. You've been I didn't through, know until I was 11. Your brother had passed. You'd been through this trial. You met Dr. Fauci and you still didn't really know because you were so young. No, I was a child. It's like, yeah. you see the movie, The Room. Like you give in a room, that's the room you live in. Mm. And that's the world you exist in. Yeah. And you know, when you're little and you've always been given medications and you've always struggled and you've always had to go to doctors every three months, it was more of an awakening to be like, Wait, so you're telling me you don't go to doctors every three months and get blood work done? (laughs) You don't have supervised, like you don't have a team that are looking after you at all times? Weird. Okay. Uh, But I found out when I was 11 because I was at a doctor's appointment with my mother and our normal doctor, our primary wasn't there. So there was a new primary that was taking over for the day who had not known the dynamic that my mom hadn't shared it with me yet. She was waiting until she felt I was old enough, which is wrapped up in its own things because, you know, we talk about sexuality now so freely and so soon then we didn't. So it's like, when do you tell a child, not yeah. only they're HIV positive, what that means is the, is that wrapped into the birds and the bee conversation? Is that separate from that conversation? Do we do this in little piecemealing? Like, how do we do this? And she was a single mom pretty much. So I get it. Uh, however, the doctor didn't know. 
and just kind of threw it out there. And my mom knew I heard it and probably was going to have questions as to what that meant. And we had a nice two and a half hour drive home from this doctor in, in Maryland at the time. And uh, she told me the story and she told me what happened. And she told me what that meant to be HIV positive. And then she topped it off with, you can't tell anyone about this Wow! because kids at my time in the early nineties were getting protested against. They were getting kicked out of school because parents were worried about their children and they didn't understand how HIV worked. So to them, it was like a flu. It was like this airborne thing. If it wasn't stigmatized to the people who understood it, it was stigmatized in its ignorance um, to the people who didn't. Well, so it, it became this thing of suddenly, Hey, you, you're just a normal kid to, Hey, you're not, you're not, you're just not. Yeah. And as life works out and it's the cosmic universe laughing at you all the time, the week later in, in class, what are we learning? (laughs) Sex ed and health and (laughs) HIV and HIV death rates. And here I am as an 11 year old sitting in a classroom being like, here's the thing I didn't even know about last week. Now you're telling me about it and I know, and now you're telling me all these people die because of it. And also I can't tell you. Wow. Great. And I kept that. I kept it all the way until I was 17. And the reason that I am who I am now, why I am a performer, why I'm an actor is because of that is because of one day I was in theater. We were in summer camp. And if anyone's done theater, they understand that it can be like therapy. <laughs> and my theater director, who later became the person who hosted me in California on their couch, said, I want every uh, student to go up on stage and I want them to share something they've never told anyone. And I was like, literally, what a better platform. This is a literal platform to, to finally get over this. And I have to become my own person. I can't hold this in because I'm not having healthy relationships with teenagers like myself. I'm not dating because I'm a disabled teenager to begin with. So if they can get over that hump, then it's like, okay, but wait, there's more (laughs) constantly. And so I'm like, I won't be free of this and I won't be able to become more than this if I don't share this. And so I went up on stage and I said, my name is Joseph Kibler and I'm HIV positive. And the overwhelming support and love changed everything. It gave me life. Before that, I didn't want to be here. I was Mm. struggling with depression and the idea that I was never going to get to normal. And being open about this and finding people, even one person who was like, that's okay. And we love you was all I needed to be like, all right, this is what I'm doing with my life. And theater gave me life. So I gave my life to theater. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, normal doesn't exist, you know? No. Oh, 100%. Yeah, but when you're a kid and you feel abnormal, it's mm-hmm. all you want in the world. You know, I've started to think about less normal and more of just like contentedness. It's like yes. joy, you know, you want to be happy. And yeah. it, I feel like when we talk about being normal, I think that's what we're trying to get at is like people want to be happy, you know? Yeah, you want, you want just... You want to be able to live in your element, in your surroundings without feeling just out of place. That's yeah. all you want. Yeah. So you found out you're HIV positive at 11. You come out to the world at 17. Your mom had asked you not to tell anyone. What did your mom think about you 
announcing this to the class? She knew that that was going to be just a, that was going to hold me out as long as I had to hold out. And as a 17 year old, eventually she realized like, I got to let him just like, you know, I moved out of my house and moved across the country from Florida to California. She had to let me explore my own thing. And I respected her in a way of not going on about it or like uh, not, I respected her by understanding that she couldn't do that. Um, which has become more and more difficult for her um, over time, not because she's not uh, wanting to be out about it, but I'm becoming a little more present in the world. I've become a little Mm. bit more um, seen. And that's been fascinating where my story is out there. It's in articles. It's I did a documentary on, on my story. I am a spokesperson. I've done, you know, advocacy work. I'm an actor. So everything about me is out there in the world. And it kind of comes back to her every now and then. And I think in a weird way, I've inadvertently made her more comfortable with it because I've kind of had to be if she wants to be like, yeah, oh, my son, I, you know, you might have seen him in this commercial. And then her friend's like, oh, let me look him up. And then suddenly she's on my IMDb page and there it is. Yeah. Joseph Kibler, born HIV positive. And it's, it's harder to, to shy away from. Yeah. Um, so complicated because every person has the right to make the choice about what is known about them and what isn't in the world, especially yes. something like this that's private. And as an 11 year old, you're kind of in this position where you have to respect your mom's position on this and kind of act in accordance with it. But as you get older, that is causing depression. You know, you're holding this thing in and you're feeling like you'll never fit in and be happy. You have to let it out. So, the understanding from each other about how to handle this is really complicated. And it sounds like you've navigated it as best as you possibly can between yourself and your mom. And I really commend you for that. Well, thank you. And it's also, I mean, that's why when we started this conversation, you're, you know, I always say like, oh, I'm an open book. I'm an open book because I was a shut book for so long. Mm. I was forced closed. Yeah. And so when you're forced to be closed that long, eventually you don't want to be that way. You're, you know, I'm, I'm one handshake away from people sometimes being like, hi, I'm Joseph Kibler. I'm HIV positive. Hi, Joseph Kibler, HIV positive, <laughs> because I just want to get it out there. Yeah. I just want to be like, yeah, let's get over this now. I mean, the dating scene, you know, that I played around with that for so long of like, when do you tell someone? When do you don't? To the point of being like, you just tell them right away. Yeah. For me, I just, everything, here you go. Because now it's out there and you get to control who you let in and who, um, you know, I, I suffered a lot of heartbreak in that way. I By holding it in, you get to know somebody, but you're not knowing them on a true level because you haven't been open about what makes you you. And so you're always going to be only aesthetically, surfacely getting to know somebody. The longer you wait to let them in, the harder it becomes because once they do know whether or not they can accept that is going to be hurt you more and more. So it's almost better for you. And I, I definitely call it a defense mechanism in some ways of being ultra open so that as to be like, look, I don't need heartbreak. I don't need time to not, you know, for you not to accept me. So here are the things that you need to accept. If you can accept them, then let's move on. It's like giving a contract to somebody. Like, <laughs> here you go. Sign on the dotted line. If we're good. Awesome. Yeah. I totally relate to that. You know, when I, uh, 
when I was dating and meeting new people, I would always just like gush out all the truth right away because yeah. you don't want to invest in someone who's not going to accept you for your idiosyncrasies. And we all have and them. And you're questioning it. You're questioning every interaction because you're wondering, yeah. would they laugh at that if they knew this? Mm. Would they smile at you this way if they knew that? Every little thing gets under a microscope because you're always worried about, well, when this thing happens, when I share this one thing, it changes the entire dynamic. Yeah. So instead of shifting the dynamic halfway through, create the dynamic you want at the start. Totally. Yeah. I'm totally with you on that. That's served me well. There's definitely been times where I've scared people away because there are people that work differently. And, yeah. but you know, who knows? Like the people that can't accept all of me right away, maybe sometimes they could have accepted yeah. me down the line, but who knows? I, I don't not, work that way. You're not scaring way. the right people away. Exactly. You're not, if, yeah. if it's the right person, they're not going to get scared away. That's how I feel. That's how I yeah. feel. It's like, if you can't be open and honest with someone, then maybe they aren't for you, you know, yeah. whether it's a friend or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the uh, technicality of, of HIV as a disease. I mean, we're pretty deep into this. I should have asked this yeah. earlier on. But, no, it's okay. Um, we've talked a little bit about it, how it you know breaks down your immune system and makes you ultra susceptible to other things. But um, that's really the, the extent of my knowledge of HIV. And I know, you know, you're not a doctor, although maybe mm-hmm. you'll play one on TV. But, um, yes. <laughs> but what can you tell us from the experience of living with it? What is HIV? So HIV, I mean... You know, it sounds so funny in a way that it feels so simplistic, but it it truly does in a sense of like, I don't feel my HIV other than I feel the medications and the things that are keeping it suppressed. Mm. Um, So for me, like if I'm having a tough time, HIV is a long timeline now. So I'm not going to recognize it. It's not like I switch, like I stop a medication one day for like a day and a half. And suddenly I'm like, man, my HIV is really acting up. I'm starting to get some (laughs) HIV in me right now. Like it it just doesn't work that way. And that's also a problem is Mm. there's a lot of people who are newly diagnosed and don't get on medication right away or don't recognize it as a destructive thing because they can't feel it the day to day. HIV doesn't get you day to day. HIV chips away at you until eventually you're so broken down immune wise, you cannot fight back. Yeah. And so it's like a ninja. It's very quiet. It's very stealthy and it can cause you a sense of false like strength because you're like, well, I'm fine. I'm healthy. And then one day you're like, oh yeah, that cough is not going away. And then it just doesn't go away. Hmm. And then you're in a hospital and that's how HIV functions. Yeah. And so you do everything in preparation to never be in that position. Right. And so you're taking medication and those medications can be harsh on the stomach. They can be wear you down a little, make you groggy, but they're ultimately helping battle something far more severe. It's just like other medications. You take a NyQuil, you're going to be loopy. You're, you're choosing the loopiness over the sickness. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's what HIV medication does to you sometimes. Wow. Um, but yeah, HIV is not, it's silent and that's what's scary yeah. about it. It's just, it's easy. I, when I was, um, in my teens and I was suffering with depression, I had tried to stop my medication because I felt that I was, I was so tied to, and I felt like it was a punishment 
And I had this false sense, which a lot of people go through where they're like, this medication is controlling me. This medication is telling me that I get to live. I want to tell me I get to live. Totally. And you fight against it. And then, you know, luckily I, I, I got scared as I should. And I got back on my regimen because that could have gotten really bad. Yeah. Um, but it's that thing of like, you know, people who don't understand chronic illness or long-term illness or are suffering day to day don't have to look at a pill calendar and see what their life is displayed out in front of them and get this idea of this little thing, this tiny little, or sometimes not so tiny, depending pill is gets to tell me who I am today. Yeah. And if I'm here yeah, and it's frustrating, no one wants to be chained. Yeah. No one wants to be told this is the thing that's going to keep you alive. Our wheelchairs, ambulatory users, you fight against it sometimes because you're like, it's not fair that this thing is what's keeping me in the world, that this is the thing. I'm, I should be enough, hmm. not this cane, not this crutch, not this wheelchair. And you start hating the very thing that's helping you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would totally relate to this. Like, at one point, I was seeing a naturopath and he had me taking like 30 pills a day. <laughs> and... I think it did more harm than good in that scenario, but I've had the experience of, you know, even if it's just for like a year and a half or something of, you know, waking up and like not taking a pill feels weird now, yeah. <laughs> but you yeah. get into the point where it's just so normal and, and it is very frustrating, you know, like even now I'm just on one pill right now. Um, we're like trialing amitriptyline to see if it helps with nerve pain for me. Interesting. And yeah. And I really don't like it. You know, I don't like doing it. And I'm, I'm really trying to stick through it because I know that it can be rough in the first couple of weeks. And I want to just make sure that if I don't like it, it's because I've been on it long enough to know that it's really not working. But exactly. even like putting one thing in your body when you aren't sure what it's doing, when it doesn't quite make sense. I'm just imagining being like 11 years old and having to do this. Um, knowing that like your body functionality is changing because of this thing that you're choosing to put in your body and it feels unnatural and it feels like you should be able to do nothing and be yes. normal because that's what everyone else is doing. So that seems like what you should do, but you can't because your body is different and you have to live in harmony with your body. And whenever you aren't, you're fighting yourself and it can have, you know, very serious repercussions, but it's, it's really difficult to be inside of that and recognize the truth of it from the inside. Absolutely. It, it's, you know, we are sometimes our own worst enemy in that way. And we, we are stubborn people, uh, human beings, as we've learned for two years are very stubborn <laughs> And that's just in our nature to want to just do what we want to do. It's, yeah. It should be all right, but it you got to go beyond yourself sometimes. Yeah, it becomes more about a need than a want. Yes. Recognizing the distinction between the two takes maturity. And that's why I, I keep thinking about you as a kid, you know, must have like really helped you to build maturity to have you to do these things. You grow up real fast. Yeah, yeah. Tell I was uh, I was always called uh, in high school. My nickname was Papa Joe because <laughs> um, everyone always came to me for like advice or they'd have problems, and I would kind of just be able to sit back and give them a little more of an insight. And I would never really share why I I could do that. Yeah, but it was just because well, when you experience life, yeah, and tragedy, like you said earlier, when you yeah. experience tragedy, it forces you to 
recontextualize things mm-hmm. and get out of your head and get out of your own way. Or you go the opposite way, like you said, where you get more mm-hmm. in your head and more in your own way. And it's really hard to, you know, to assert control over that choice because yes. it can feel like it isn't a choice. Um, so where does the neurological piece come in? You mentioned the gray matter. Um, what, 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 do you know anything about like the technical functionality of HIV that causes that? So that's still something that even doctors don't really fully um, understand or, wow. or can uh, fully get into what that has done. Um, it's kind of the same way as that, you know, CP or de- C- cerebral palsy develops yeah. in, a, in a lot of that way. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable enough to go through without being like, I'm pulling stuff from, yeah. you know, where just to try to get through it, you kind of just accept an, a diagnosis and you figure that out and yeah. kind of, I've functioned, I've managed to like fight both separately hmm. in a way. Um, yeah. That's so interesting because you're, your cerebral palsy type disease is mimicking cerebral palsy, but it's yes. not necessarily what, what normally, what, what's the normal cause of cerebral palsy in someone who has the traditional form? Well, there's a, so there's, again, that's a spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can have high functioning CP, you can have low functioning. It can be the amount of oxygen. It can be um, within like the, the pregnancy itself. Um, there's, so many different causes Mm. for that specifically and way that it affects the body. You can be wheelchair bound or you could have just some muscle weakness and a right foot. Like Mm. it is a wide spectrum. Wow. So again, I, I, again, I would, I would be very careful in my, in my tiptoeing through that. Absolutely. Yeah. You can Um, only speak to your own experience and exactly. Yeah. I mean, I love learning new things on this podcast, but I also like occasionally will will talk to medical professionals, but I never right. expect a patient to have, you know, medical knowledge beyond what they need to survive, you know, beyond what yes. they need to kind of get through their life uh, in the way that is best for them. You know, I talk to people sometimes who know very little about their diseases. They just know what the doctors have told them and, and what they need to do to get through the day. And that's as much as they need to know, you know, and I think sometimes that's a, sometimes that's a security. That's like a defense thing. We're sure. not a defense. That's a survival thing. It's like, you know, when I start dealing with something, a new symptom, I know a lot of people who are like, I'm going to get right on Google. And I'm going right. to start going down that rabbit hole. That's not me because I know that that rabbit hole can go into many dark ways mm-hmm. and a lot of answers that won't be right. And in some ways you can harm yourself right. because you're getting way too in your head and way too worried and way too afraid. And so I, I get that too, where it's like, you want to know your thing. And sometimes knowledge is scary. Yeah. It just is for people. To have that that idea and then not knowing, especially when anyone with a chronic illness or anyone who's long-term illness knows, doctors aren't also always right. Right. And so the information you're getting, you have to be careful for your heart because things change. Right. The things you thought you were going to get a diagnosis or an answer suddenly are like, nope, sorry, we'll 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 try again soon. Yeah. Nope, sorry, we'll try again soon. Oh, you're diag- I mean, I see this again with um like with uh, neurological or neurotypical or neurodivergent um diagnosis where things change right. you're diagnosed one way and then you're actually something else so it can be very tricky about getting in your head yeah and being like this is me i am all of this 
And then suddenly you're taking on things Mm -hmm. because it's a mental gymnastics of you trying to accept it. But now you're showing traits of something you didn't even have (laughs) because you've convinced yourself that you finally have an answer. Yeah, very true. Very true. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to people who have had diagnoses taken away entirely, where they thought they knew what they had, and then a new doctor comes in and says, nope, that's not it, you know? Yep. I mean, I've had, I've been misdiagnosed several times, but all of my diagnoses have been a little bit on the questionable side, or yeah. diagnoses of yeah. exclusion. Um, yeah, so that absolutely makes sense. What What has been the progression of your, uh, of your disability as you've, like, from childhood until now? So I originally started in on a wheelchair. And then when I was really young, they tried to transition me back to like a walker. And it was just very tiring on my body. The HIV medication I was on at that time had caused a lot of uh, weight gain um, because sometimes that is a side effect of Mm it, uh, especially at that time. And I was having a lot of trouble. So they put me back into a wheelchair Eventually, my medications with my HIV got balanced out so that I wasn't having that issue as much. And I was able to progress in physical therapy through a wheelchair to a walker, walker to crutches. I was on my crutches until I was about 16, 17. And then I really wanted to get to a cane. Hmm. So I'd been doing the physical therapy. I'd been walking everywhere, carrying you know backpacks in high school from lockers and doing all that stuff. And I was in um, a musician at that time too. So I was carrying my guitars or my bass with me, building up my muscle. You do that enough, you you build up some muscle. <laughs> and um, I had been really wanting to get onto a cane and my theater, another, it's always going to come back to this, but the summer camp theater people knew mm-hmm. that I wanted to get onto my cane and the whole cast of the show I was on at the time surprised me with a white cane that they had all signed. And basically the head of the theater company gave it to me as like a, whenever you're ready Hmm. here, you have this transitional moment. And it really pushed me to want to be like, okay, I want to be ready. I want to do this. And I got on my cane almost weeks and later and stayed on that cane until about 30. And right before the pandemic, I had started having some really body fatigue. I was just getting older and I was pushing my body to levels that probably should never have been pushed, but anyone with a physical disability knows that sometimes you need that momentum and the idea of stopping or the idea of looking back is going to just harm you. So you just want to keep going, keep pushing through the pain, keep pushing through whatever you're dealing with because there's an, a goal. And so I had really wanted to stay on that cane. I had done um, a lot of AIDS walks and I actually did a documentary around me Uh, training to do the AIDS walk. So I actually trained to do 6.2 miles on the cane. Wow! So I'd gotten my body to that point. And then that was a decade earlier than now as a 30 year old pre-pandemic, I had just been feeling all that. And it all caught up to me because it just does with age sometimes. And it was hurting me and I was getting back problems and I couldn't walk my dog for as long as I wanted to. And eventually I went to a physical therapist and she put it very bluntly. She's like, look, you can stay on this cane and probably have another year or two of pushing your body to its limit and then end up in a wheelchair. Or you can transition back to crutches and have way more time as your quote unquote normal. We talked about normal. My drive to be on this cane was a drive to be accepted. 
and a drive to seeing the cane was the closest thing in my mind at that time, even as a 30 year old to normal. And I didn't want to lose that. And I felt like going back to crutches was me giving up or going backward and being accepted less. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny. She's like, I'm going to take your phone. I want to record you right now. And I'm like, okay. And she recorded my walk with a cane. And then she recorded my walk with the crutches. And she's like, to you, in your mind of your, of your fear of normal, what looks more normal to you? And my body was whipping and backlashing on myself and hurting myself in the cane. And I was flailing all over the place. And then my crutches, I was a little more steady. I was a little more upright. I wasn't killing my body. And she's like, to me, this is more of a perception of what you are looking for. Mm -hmm. But I was so detached in the equipment, in the accessories, in what that represented to me as as this evolution i was literally the evolutionary chart on a you, you know to show it <laughs> and that was my mind i was like i'm almost there and it's like N- but who am i doing that for right because at the end of the day i have to live with my body yeah not anyone else why am i going to kill myself to still not really be perceived as normal quote yeah. unquote to that group of people that i'm so desperately trying to gain approval from uh, and I finally had to convince myself and say, it's not worth it. And now I'm back on the crutches and I'm doing physical therapy and I'm trying to stay on them. But I'm also been told recently, as of a week ago, I'm walking too fast <laughs> still. Yeah. And I need to slow it down and I need to not be so ahead of myself. And it's hard when you're kind of programmed with, I know, you know, you had it for so long and a lot of people who are long-term disability, you know, or ambulatory wheelchair users or whoever you are, you have been told to conform to society, mm-hmm. not society conforming to you. I love the new generation that is out there that is like, that is unacceptable. Society has to change because we didn't get that. It was a lot of too bad. There's stairs. You better get up the stairs, <laughs> figure it out. Cause everyone yeah. else can. And you want to be with them, right? So you do it. Now it's like, no, this whole building needs to be broken down and, and built new. And I love that. Yeah. Because it's helping, it's helping people not push themselves to levels they should never have to push themselves. Totally. Yeah. I mean, mobility aids are supposed to be just that, you know? Yeah. Aids to help you be mobile. And it's interesting that you're talking about this because I, you know, uh, within the last couple of years, I went from using a cane to using a wheelchair when I'm out and about. And today, I, you know, we did something where I wasn't going to be able to use the wheelchair, so I had to bring my cane. And the further I walk with the cane, the more pain that I'm in, and right. you know, the more my body starts to scream at me, "Please don't do this." And when I'm in the wheelchair, my body doesn't do that. My body's like, "Wee," <laughs> you know, like yeah. we're going fast. Yeah. This is great. So, like, learning to listen to that and honor that, and you know have your body be the thing telling you what to do instead of society itself. Uh, you just feel better. You're able to accomplish more. You can do more yeah. and for longer and you build up more strength and you get more good rest. Um, yeah. It's, and it's tough, like getting over that mind hurdle of, you know, I don't want to be seen as weak and I don't want to be, you know, looked at for being, you know, different. Yeah. Uh, can be really tough, but the joy that I feel in my body <laughs> You know, my body's like, thank you. 
I love yeah. this wheelchair. It just feels why are so you, good. Why are we hurting ourselves? I laugh right. now. I think about it. I'm like, why am I? What am I doing? Who is this for? Yeah. I'm the only one who's who's being who's struggling here. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. Tell what is what is your relationship to the word disability? I know you self-identify as disabled. Um, and this is something interesting, you know. I, I was talking to somebody actually. Uh, a podcast guest off the podcast about how they prefer the term differently abled to disabled. And, you know, I applied for disability and was rejected as everyone is their first time. I functionally, I have a disability, even though I don't know what it is. I've started to think of myself that way, which has been a bit of a weird perspective shift for me. Um, And I still don't know how to feel about that or where where I sit on that. Um, I'm curious to hear as someone who's You've had this for li- your whole life. What, how do you feel about that word? I mean, I've heard every word. I've been through every word. And, and every few years, we decide the word, and then we go with that word. And then a few years later, we, we evolve with that word. Um, for me, the word, has, the word has no meaning. It's the action behind the word yeah. and the intentions behind the word. I hear those more than I hear the word. Um, oh, and you yeah. can always tell the circumstance that you're hearing it in. I don't care about the word. I care about the intention behind the word. And as somebody who literally works, my career is to get breakdowns in emails and be told the description of my character every time I'm up for something. So I get to know what people are supposed to be thinking of me constantly. And those are submissions that I'll get where I've gotten differently able, I've gotten handicapped, I've gotten disabled, I've gotten person with a disability, I've gotten um, every name in the book because people are constantly trying to, one, not get canceled and not worry about fear and not (laughs) say the wrong thing. And also, they're just, we're just growing. And so for me, use whatever makes you feel happy. It's the same with pronouns, use what you identify with, mm-hmm. use what, what makes you empowered. Yeah. That is totally fine. To me, whether you call me a handicapped person, I don't, you know, person with a just my, my distant cousins will be like, you're special. Don't, okay. Don't know about that one. Not a fan <laughs> of that one. But also people want so badly to define and put it in a box and wrap it up and give it a bow and, and call it a day. None of that matters in the end. It's about what you intend with that word and what you intend to say and what you're trying to talk to me about. I remember a few years ago, I was at a a wrestling event and I was the only disabled person in the crowd and they did a little announcement over the, over the, the monitor. It was a very small club and they're like, anyone with uh, any special abilities is more than happy to uh, accommodate and will let them sit wherever they want. And I just thought, like the power of flight. <laughs> yeah. I'm like special abilities. I can all see right. through walls. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought it was so funny to me. Like I was the only one there. I know they had come up to me or they saw me and they just didn't want to approach me directly. Hmm. And then they had this phrase that they thought was, you know, right. But they were doing something to help me and they meant great things by it. And they wanted to help. I don't care that they said special abilities. Yeah. Because I understand that they don't mean anything by it. They don't, mean they're just trying to find the placement of the word in the moment Mm. and so i will always come at any situation that way first before i think about the word i like sometimes we scramble i say things that i misspeak all the time we all do it just sometimes you're just trying to get the right words and hope that they all come stringing out 
the right way. Um, yeah. And so you, but you can, again, not to harp on this, you can just always tell intention. And that's, that's all I care about. If you're mean spirited about it, if you're being patronizing about it, if you're, if you're being flippant about it, if you're, you know, trying to be above me in some way, you know, then, then we'll talk about that. I care yeah. about that. I don't care about the word. Yeah. When you self-identify as something and you make that known and people refuse to identify you that way. That's different. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And that goes back to the intention like you're talking about. I, I love that. So, okay. From your TikTok, I know that yeah. you are a Make-A-Wish kid and I have yeah. to ask you about this. What is the story? So, I mean, I was, you know, you get volunteered or you get, I was in NIH, National Institute of Health where Dr. Fauci was working and, you know, you, you get on a list and you become, you know, uh, up for a make-a-wish or you get granted a wish. And as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, I did the stupid thing of picking Disney. <laughs> why not? And I was just the like, I think about it all the time. It's the happiest place on earth. I had been there. I had been there. Why did I pick that? I went there afterwards. We went every summer. I don't understand why I did. No child should be given this kind of power. Um, no, I joke. But but it's true. I was a Make-A-Wish kid. And then, you know, going through that experience, um, thinking about that experience or going retroactively considering that experience, you know, everyone wants to make you make that day mean something and, and mm. do whatever they can to make you happy. And the reality of that is because as a Make-A-Wish kid, you're not really, you know, consider that you might not be here and it's about making memories yeah. and making sure that you are so happy because this life might be fleeting for you. And there's a fascination there because, you know, as we talked off Mike, um, you haven't met many adult make-a-wish kids. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you just live on through it and you are, you know, you're told you're not going to, and then you do. And it is a weird experience because, you know, as an adult, and, and in my joke in the TikTok was that, you know, we should get a do-over. We should get a, I made it a wish. We should get like, you know, pay our mortgage or, or you know, uh, take care of my student loan debt. Yeah. And it's this idea of like, if I could go back or if I could have held on to that thing, I would have picked something a little more, you know, put an investment down or something. <laughs> get me some stock in Apple. I don't know. Like, really aim for the stars. Um but it is, it's a, and it's a wonderful company. And I, I don't mean anything by them, obviously. Yeah. Uh, You're in a bizarre situation where you, yeah. you were told you were going to die and you're still here. You were told you might have four years. You're yeah, 32. I'm on, I'm on expiration. I, I think I'm like, I'm past my time limit. So to me, it's like, well, I really can't fail and I can't do anything bad. I can't do anything wrong <laughs> here because I'm already past the point I'm supposed to be here. So it's kind of like bonus time. Let's just do whatever you want to do because, I mean, why not? Yeah. I, I mean, I can't wrap my brain around that feeling. Obviously, the, the intention of Make-A-Wish is to for these like, children whose futures might not happen to have a powerful memory in the moment, experience the now in a powerful way. So, when you grow up that way, when you grow up being told experience the now because you won't have a future, how do you comprehend having a future? How do you comprehend the it, fact that you're still here? It's very hard because it, w it went well beyond Make-A-Wish. I mean, my mom lived in a way that was like, we weren't going to be here tomorrow. So, like, she put herself in debt 
constantly mm, wow. to give us stuff to do. Like, yeah. let's go on a cruise. Let's go on this vacation. You want this toy? Let's get you this toy. You want this system? Let's get you this system. You want to get into a guitar? Okay. How many guitars can we get you? Like, it was this thing of like, well, we don't know if tomorrow is going to be here. So I just want to make sure that we're in it, in it, in it. And it's really hard to plan for a future and realize like, eventually you have to get to a point where you're just like, well, I am here. So what am I going to do? What do I want to do? How do I do it? Because you're just kind of floating and you're a passenger and you're just like, well, eventually I'm, I'm gone. So I might as well just sit back. Um, it also creates attachments in a weird way. And I don't know how many other kids who are in this situation dealt with this, but my mom uh, very much dealt with our tragedies in a material way. Mm. So it created this weird attachment with gift giving to the point where like, I don't do well getting random gifts from people. <laughs> uh, even as I got older, my mom surprised me out of nowhere, not for a Christmas, not for a birthday and got me a really nice guitar. And I about had a panic attack because I was like, what went wrong? Wow. Who died? What's the problem? Are you dying? <laughs> because like, why am I getting this thing? I had, I had attached those two things of like, material items tragedies which is a weird attachment um and it takes a little to kind of wrap my head around that my my girlfriend's very giving and we we have that that issue sometimes wow. where i have to accept the idea of of being taken care of or of being kind of not even spoiled but just provided anything because i've created it with my illness or i've 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 wrapped it up in in that I'm being perceived as weak or I'm being perceived as um, fragile and you're trying to care for that, mm. not just be a good person. Yeah. When their intention is likely, I love you and I want you to have this I, nice thing. Exactly. And yeah. it's very genuine and real and, and sweet. Yeah. But I totally hear where you're coming from. Absolutely. Do you, what age did you start to think about the future or do you think about the future? Do you plan for the future now? I definitely plan for the future now. At this point, I'm like, okay, 32 years, probably time to start living. Uh, <laughs> probably okay. Uh, I, I, I think about the future in the way of, I think about the things that I want to um, accomplish in this world as opposed to like a plan of action of how to accomplish it. And so for me, a lot of like, I had big dreams very early on clearly wanting to get into the acting industry is insane in itself. So wanting to do that, you have to dream or you have to have a plan for the future. But at the same time, like I talked about not being able to fail, it was like, well, I can either go into a day job that I don't like and then die tomorrow <laughs> or go after a thing that I really love film and movies and television and being an actor and maybe die tomorrow, yeah. but at least I'm dying happy. <laughs> yeah. And so I've kind of just rode that in the essence of like, well, that's the thing you want to do. Just spend every day trying to do that thing. And if you get tomorrow to do it again, do it again. And if you don't, you don't, but you at least weren't miserable. And I've had to fight that misery. It's hard. Sometimes it's very easy to get wrapped up in something else. I, I got jobs as teachers or I got jobs as a Lyft driver or a job as a cashier because you just want some semblance of a, of a reality or a, like a stability, but then you're not happy. And I'm in a weird position where I can chase happy. And also, unless you're, you know, there's a privilege in that. Yes. I, I got into a position where I could take chances 
and have those auditions and live off of what I could live off of until I had a little more, yeah. you know, I, I found myself in situations where I was on disability, where I could be on disability and still pay rent and still take chances. That's a privilege in a, way, a weird way. It still is a privilege until I didn't have to worry about that disability. And I was living off of my acting work. And now I'm in a position where that's the case. I, have uh, several national commercials that are out right now that are airing that are allowing me the ability to just write and work on material and audition for things when they come up. And for now, I'm going to continue to chase that because I understand that that's not everyone's ability. And I also understand that I've gone through too much in this world not to do the thing that I want to do. Yeah. I'm totally with you. I mean, I've experienced what you're saying on both sides of this of like, you know, I used to work at Starbucks or work as a leasing agent, jobs that were, um, that I actually really enjoyed because I love the people I was working with, but yeah, we're not like content creation, which is what I want to do with my life is I want to make things that make people happy. And I was able to do that because I was much healthier at that point And I had the energy to do both. Yeah. Um, but when you don't, you know, when you have something affecting your body where whatever it is that you do with your day is going to be the only thing you do. You know, like uh, when I often like record this podcast and then do nothing for the rest of the day because I'm <laughs> exhausted because, you know, I poured all of my energy into, into this thing. But this always, 100% of the time, every one of these conversations that I've had has just like filled me with life because it's just incredible to hear other people's stories and to, you know, see that there are the, all of these parallel journeys of living with chronic illness like mine, where I yeah. feel so much less alone. And, you know, if I have to choose between like spending my life doing something that gives me life or something that drains my life when my life is already being drained by a chronic illness, that's just unlivable. So it no. really changes the equation. Um, so I, I really feel like that's what you're speaking to. And I, I'm with you. I totally agree. Um, yeah. I it must be so hard to like turn this switch in your brain of like I'm living in the moment I'm living for the now I have this disease that should have killed me already to being I'm still here my T cell count is high I'm yeah. thriving I have people in my life that love me I'm a I'm a I'm on national TV <laughs> <laughs> like you're just kind of that that transition is remarkable and here you are living it I'm talking to you right now you're like this <laughs> amazing guy you're this hunky tv star like how do you i it's it's kind of hard to comprehend i can't imagine living through that well one creates the other and my for my situation one created the other one gave me you know um when you have a net and when you have a safety net and a thing to fall to you don't jump when you don't you do and you know it, it's this idea is this weird thing of like this protection or this idea of like, I could do anything else and I'm fine. And it's like, for me, I decided that this was the thing I wanted to do and there was no reason to be doing anything else. And again, I, I said this before, but it's, it's true. I already kind of should have failed. I literally, I can't do it wrong. I'm not supposed to be here. So like, what am I, why not just do it? Just every yeah. day, go out and do the audition, do the next thing, because already I'm not supposed to be here. You know, I had this idea, I had very little expectations of me from those who were around me. And it wasn't that they didn't love me, is that they thought I, I thought I worked enough. They thought I fought enough. They were like, you know, 
I remember being a 17 and sitting at home and thinking I could go to a community college. I could stay at home and live with my mom. I could get some computer job and no one in my life would think that I deserved more because they felt I already did enough by existing. I did enough by not dying. That was just it. So when I found out that literally no one, unlike my friends who had these high expectations to become lawyers or superstars or actors in their own right, who were the leads in the field, I was, I was the supporting character. If I was in the show, most of the time I was the lighting guy. I wasn't even in the shows. So it's like, I didn't have that pressure. They were the ones who were told that they were going to be movie stars. They were the ones who were told that they were going to be doctors. They were the ones who had pressure from their family. My mom was just glad that I was here the next day. So to me, it was like, well, if no one is expecting you to do this thing and no one's going to look at you, if you came home one day from California as a failure, like, oh, he didn't make it. No one had this. What better circumstances to be under Mm. to then just push yourself and push yourself because you're on an unlimited timeline. No one's looking at the check things off the box. They're just like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, nowadays I get high school friends who text me. Oh, I just saw your commercial. Oh, I just saw your episode of Chicago Med. Oh, I just saw (laughs) this. That's, you know, it's like, I'm grateful that I've gotten to that point and I may not have gotten to that point, but I had endless time to work on it with no one watching me. Yeah. And I'm glad that you acknowledged the privilege piece of that because it's a weird position to be in where like the reason you have that is because you have HIV, you know? Yeah. Um, And it's so interesting because like, I think a lot of people would hear you talk about it and be like, well, I have to work whatever job is offered to me because like I I have to. And that is very real. You know, like there's so many people out there in like a socioeconomic position. Like our country is, (laughs) there's this like huge problem in that, you know, so many people out there working their whole lives and not not being able to ever make a living wage. And like, that is a huge problem completely separate from what we're talking about. And, you know, there is like an interesting piece of this where um, sometimes horrible things happening open up wonderful doors you know it's yeah. it's really bizarre how life and works and the system and the system doesn't the system isn't made to succeed yeah. i mean if we can get honest for a second the social security system and the disability system isn't made for success it's made to either live off of it and live on this low end or you have to somehow jump from that to a 401k in a CEO position while you're not allowed to work the middle because the middle means you are removed from the disability. The middle means you're no longer eligible. The middle means that you now get exhausted because that thing that you wanted to do, well, and now you're too exhausted to do that next job, but then they're expecting you to have a living that you can get to that level. You can't, you can't jump from one to the other. For me, I lived off of it because I had to, but I also knew and this way the industry works, once you start getting those jobs, you can jump and you can yeah. jump from not having to do it anymore. And I never thought I was going to have a middle. There's no middle for me. There's either I got nothing or I got everything. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all you have to do is like, I had to accept, okay, I'm just going to have nothing until I got everything until yeah. I'm living off of my work. And that's all I'm living off of, but you can't 
you know, and I understand it is a privilege. It is 100% a privilege. And if I have that, well, I might as well go to every audition I can go to. Yeah. I might as well then work at my career. I might as well then be the actor I want to be because I have the time to devote to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in a really similar boat where like the last five years I haven't been able to work. So I've just been churning out content and it takes a hundred percent of my energy to do it. And it's very hard. And I'm in a lot, I'm fighting through pain all the time when I'm doing it. But on the other hand, I'm also kind of living my dreams. Like I'm, I am having this series now where I'm in Star Trek (laughs) in like this Star Trek farcical way that I'm having the most fun with. And this podcast is like, I've, I've always, I never knew what form it would take, but I've always wanted to have something like this where um, I could be a part of like fascinating conversations on a regular basis and share it with an audience. I never would have guessed that this is the form it would have taken, but this is like fulfilling a part of me that has always wanted something like this. And with content creation, you either make almost no money or you make a ton (laughs) of money. There is no middle there either. And it all depends on the algorithm. So yeah, major pain, uh, patreon.com slash major pain podcast if you'd like to support this show <laughs> exactly I, I remember i listened to uh when i was getting into, really into bass and i was listening to an interview with flea uh done by river phoenix it was this weird wow. instructional dvd that i have some for some reason but he says it great he's like you know it's not about the instrument you get the instrument you can make music off of the worst instrument but then suddenly you become successful and they want to give you the most expensive instrument for free. Mm. And it's that idea of like, you know, you work really hard on with the, with the least you have. And then suddenly when you're deemed successful, they want to give you the best of everything um, just because now you fought through it. It's like, well, that feels so reverse. That feels yeah. so backward. Yeah. Like, shouldn't we be pouring in the equipment and the intent and the ability to the people that are struggling? Yeah. But we, we aren't, it's, it's just a weird way that, that the content creation and entertainment and all this works. Um, it's, it's hard. It's, yeah. And it shouldn't take having a chronic illness to have the time to pursue your dreams. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> but yeah, but when you do, when you're living with that, it is so easy to fall into the dark, the darkness, and that spirals, and you can't get out. And the way that I keep myself out of that is through creating, is through creativity. Yeah. And it really like lifts me up, and it makes me feel like my life has value. And if I were to get a diagnosis and have treatment and be 100% healthy again, um, I mean, it's like it's insane to even like think about that at this point for me, like this deep into what I'm going through. But like, I will. I will look back on the last five years of being sick all the time in pain all the time. And it's, I didn't do nothing. You know, I like, no. I started this podcast. I, I found myself as a creator. I found a project that I could do that, um, that gave me joy and let me live out my dreams on a couple of different fronts. And yeah. that's like what I've always wanted. So, you know, so much can happen inside of living with a chronic illness. I mean, you're an incredible example of that. You know, the life you've lived is remarkable. Um, I know, like someone told me recently that I was inspiring and I don't like hearing that because it feels weird, but you know, I won't say it, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, Um, I I do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's weird to feel like you're just kind of doing the best by yourself, um, for yourself and other people finding that inspiring. And I think that sometimes it just, you know, anyone can do that, but it takes some trauma and it takes some, um, having to fight through something to find that in yourself. 
And anyone can do that. It's just really hard to realize that when you don't have these barriers in your way. Right. And, and, and talking about the word inspiration, that's again, all that intent, yeah. all that intent. And what does that mean? Are they saying it because they just see you and suddenly they see, they see disabled and then they see mm. inspiration? Right. Or are they seeing what you've done with your disability? Because you're not inspiring right. because you have a disability. You're inspiring because of what you've done with that disability. Right. Well, what I would say about you is that what I find inspiring about your story is that you have found a path towards joy and creativity. And that's what I admire when people are struggling through things and through trauma. That's what I love seeing because that gives me hope for myself. And I feel like that's the path that I'm trying to walk as well. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. This has been a fantastic conversation today. I appreciate your time so much. Of course. Um, what an incredible point of view to share. And I, I feel like I could talk to you all day. You know, I always, I often feel that way. Um, I feel like we're at this natural point where it'd be really good to wrap up. I have one last question for you um, before I want you to, you know, plug your, plug everything you want to plug. Oh, Please yeah. feel free. But uh, just my last question for you, if you were able to address someone who had just been diagnosed with HIV and is feeling this stigma around it and this fear and not knowing where to turn or what to do or how to feel, here you are at 32, had it since birth, you can speak to this. What would you say to that person? Uh, HIV is just a name and it's not a death sentence. And all you can do is literally take it day by day, listen to the people around you, speak to the people around you and don't let it consume you in private. Um, be open about it because being open about it, talking about it, it's like seeing shadowy monsters in the dark. You just got to turn on the lights. You, you keep in the shadows, you create so many more fears and so many things of what it could be. But by shedding light on it, by letting everyone else into this world for you, it removes that fear and it removes that stigma and it removes the power HIV can have. Yeah. Yeah, if you could go back and not have HIV, would you make that choice? I, honestly, the HIV, the disability, as much as it's not who I am, it is 100% the way that it's cultivated my life. If yeah. I didn't have those things, I wouldn't have gone on the paths that I've gone on. I literally, not to, to be tangenty, but I legit was going to go into auto mechanics in high school instead of theater and my principal was like, auto mechanics, heavy machinery, disabled kid, not safe. You should just do theater. Wow. And I was, I rolled that. I was annoyed at that. That was a 14 year old, like, <laughs> all right, I guess I'll do theater. And I think about that day all the time of like, that literally put me on the path of my entire career. So no, I wouldn't take that stuff away because yeah. I've gotten to learn things and experience life, however chaotic. Um, that I would never have had. I would be an entirely different person. I wouldn't be talking with you today. Yeah. There's no, who knows what the world would have been. Totally. Um, yeah, I think about myself without my chronic health issues. I now walk through the world with gratitude for what I have. I used to walk through the world envious of what other people had. And that yeah. shift alone is so monumental. And without that, 
my ability to feel happiness and contentedness with my life was severely diminished. And I really believe it's because of what I've had to struggle through that, you know, now whenever I have a day where my pain level is lower, I'm just like, feel so happy to be alive. And yeah. my whole life before my chronic pain stuff was really taken over, I never felt that, you know, I, yeah. it's very rare for me to feel like I was inside of a perfect moment. And I used to be upset that I didn't feel that way more often, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I always was told I, I, I've, I was forced to stop and smell the roses because I couldn't walk fast enough not to. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, learning to appreciate how good it feels to be outside on a nice day and how that can fill you with complete contentedness if you let it. Mm -hmm. But you have to learn how. And sometimes yeah. you just have to be pushed to your breaking point to learn that lesson. So, it's so valuable. And yeah, I mean, your perspective is incredible. I'm, I'm so grateful. I feel so lucky to be able to share it on the podcast. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, I absolute, really enjoyed absolute it. pleasure. Please plug everything, direct people to whatever you'd like for them to see. Uh, I don't have too many things for to direct people to these days that um, I can really speak publicly about too much. Ooh. I have two projects that are... <laughs> are in the works currently that are, are getting out there that I'll hopefully have to share somewhat soon. Um, but if you want to follow along on my content, um, you can find me on TikTok at Joseph A. Kibler. Um, I think my other name on that label is like uh, Yoda and Molly and Joe and nonsense. Cause yeah. it's me. <laughs> if you like pets, if you like animals, it's a lot of animals. I got a Chihuahua pug and a calico cat and they're just as much part of my content <laughs> as i am um beyond that i mean you might see me shopping in a grocery store or buying a home or soon um i'll be <laughs> kayaking for a toyota commercial that's coming out this month i love um, kayaking yeah that's so awesome. that's that's as much as i can share right now yeah and i'll tag you on tiktok when i post this yeah, episode oh, nice uh, if anyone who follows the show wants a quick and easy way to get over yeah. to your page. I, again, I love your page. It's a really great combination of um, awareness and advocacy as far as disability is concerned, but also like sketch comedy and humor and fun. And it's yeah. just a really great balance of everything. I, I really well, enjoy you. your, your TikTok I'm, page. I'm glad I can put my film degree to use. And my time at UCB to use. Oh, it's, nice. it's great to put all that stuff back into the <laughs> yeah into the content world. Um, yeah, but yeah. It, it, when we were kids, it's like you had to go through all these channels to have a platform, and now you can just yeah. create one. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, Joseph, it's been amazing today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com.
Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, and Brooke Walters Schmidt, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh and Chris Fowler. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition and gifts at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.